appreciate all the kindness that you've shown me, all the patience that you've shown me, all of the um, privilege that you've given us to serve alongside each other. And uh, whoever it is that God sends here to be your next pastor is going to be a very, very, very blessed man. And And I hope that you guys still remember how to hold revivals and homecomings and stuff, and you can call me, and we'll, we'll come on. Uh, tonight, there'll be a couple of decisions to make that I want to just tell everybody up front that you need to be here. Um, you're going to have to elect somebody to serve as a moderator to conduct the business meetings and stuff uh, while I'm gone uh, until you call a new pastor. So you've got to call somebody. You've got to elect somebody to do that. Uh, that person will also ideally be the chairman of your pulpit committee that in a few weeks you'll be voting on a pulpit committee to vet candidates. Um, and that uh, person will also be the one who kind of interacts with Brother Paul. To, and if, so if he's not able to be here, calls Brother Bobby Bryant or somebody to, to fill in. He'll be the organizer. Um, it needs to be somebody who is reliable and who's faithful and who has a level head because uh, sometimes, you know, People say strange things when it's time to conduct business. Um, and so I think there's a couple of good candidates here right now this morning that I think that you could, uh, you know, so I'll ask for nominations and we'll vote on that tonight. Um, so be sure that you're here tonight because I'm going to go over the whole process of what, uh, you know, what you'll do in the days ahead. I know that uh, since I kind of came in internally, it's been over 20 years since the church has called a new pastor, you know, from the outside, and so I've gone and been talking to people and trying to get as much information as I can for you to help you make the process as smooth as possible. Uh, I'll still be around and available. I'll still be, um, you know, hopefully able to help the next pastor make make some introductions and stuff and help him get settled in and show him how to use the equipment and stuff. I don't know. I don't know, but. Uh, like I said, I'm not moving to Kansas or Colorado or Canada or something. We'll be in Alvin. And uh, this morning, I was uh, talking to William, and I said, you know, William, you understand that this is our last Sunday. This is our goodbye Sunday. And he said, oh, I know. You know, my mom told me. But are you still going to be here for Easter? <laughs> I, said, I said, no, William, I'm not going to be here for Easter. Why are you asking about Easter? He said, because of my birthday. <laughs> I said, I can still come to your birthday, William. I can still come to your birthday. So, um, and just uh, you know, there's nothing that any of you have done that is anything less than the most that anybody could ask for. Um, and again, if it weren't, if we weren't sure from prayer and fasting and months of those <laughs> that uh, this was God's will, then you wouldn't be able to drag me away from here. Uh, and so, we will be continuing to pray for you and ask that you'd pray for me. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 is going to be an important text. The, uh, this is actually the same text that I preached on there when I went and candidated an album because it's such an important text about what it means, what a church is about. You know, what are we for? What's a pastor for? What is a church? What is a church? You know, oftentimes you talk about finding, uh, you know, hiring a pastor to come and, you know, be in the ministry, hiring somebody to come and do the work. But biblically, that's wrong. That's, that's horrendously wrong. Biblically, the idea is that it is the job of the pastor to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and it's the job of the saints, it's the job of the people to do it. 
A church is not defined by her pastor. A church is not defined by her teachers. A church is not defined by her deacons. A church is defined by all of the people as different parts of one body glorifying Christ together. That's the point. And so the, uh, the job that I've had has been over the last, you know, six years to equip you a little at a time to do the work of the ministry, to reach out, to reach people with the gospel, to show people how to follow Christ. And so this passage here is the blueprint for the ministry. I want you to leave here today being able to say, I am in the ministry. I am in the Lord's service. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. Right? <laughs> I want you to have that kind of passion when you leave here today. I want you to realize that as you're selecting a pastor, your job is not to select somebody that will come in and do the work for you. If you find somebody who's going to come in and do everything for you, you are taking five giant leaps backwards. <laughs> not only as a church, but in your own spiritual life. If you ever get to the mentality where you think you can hire somebody to do God's service, you say, well, I'm not going to witness to anybody. That's the pastor's job. I'm not going to invite anybody to church. That's the pastor's job. I'm not going to change the light bulb. You know, that's why we pay the pastor. If you ever start to think like that, you are so spiritually infantile that you ought to be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> but I don't think that you think that way, and I don't think that you're going to think that way. <laughs> when you select a pastor, you are not selecting the person with the best resume you are not selecting the person that you think you would like the best. You are selecting the person that you think that God is sending you to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Paul, in chapter 4, verse 1, says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Let's stop here for just a minute. I want to give you a little bit of context. Ephesians is, what, Ephesians is what is called one of the prison epistles. Paul is in prison as he writes this. He's in a Roman prison awaiting trial for preaching Jesus. Ultimately, he will be tried and he will be executed. He'll be beheaded for the gospel. The other apostles were oftentimes uh, crucified or tortured in different ways, but Paul was a Roman citizen, and so they gave him the relatively quick sentence of decapitation. Paul does not say, I, Paul, a prisoner of Caesar. He does not say, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Romans. He does not say, I, Paul, a prisoner of whoever. <laughs> he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Paul says, I'm in this jail. He said, but if it were just Caesar that had sent me to this jail, I wouldn't be here. He said, if it were just the Rome, might of the Roman Empire that put me here, I wouldn't be here. Paul says, every decision that I make, everywhere that I go, everything that I do is determined by one. He says, I am the prisoner of the Lord. <laughs> I wonder how many of us could honestly say that. How many of us could say that if God takes us to a place, then we're in that place because we're his prisoner. I'm, I'm where I am because of him. Paul could. Paul could say, I'm in jail, I'm, but I'm God's prisoner here in jail. That if God decides to let me out, I'll be out. And if God decides to keep me in here, then nobody's going to get me out. So I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm God's. I operate on God's timetable, in God's place, in God's way. When I think about that, I think about my favorite hymn, uh, written by John Newton. Uh, you've all heard me quote it many times. Uh, John Newton, of course, is most famous for writing Amazing Grace, but I don't think that that's his best song. 
I think that his best song is the song that goes, uh, content with beholding his face, a palace, a toy would appear. All prisons would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. <laughs> says, dear Lord, if indeed I am thine, if thou art my strength and my song, say, why do I languish and pine in troubles and fears all day long? Content with beholding his face, a palace, a toy would appear. All prisons would palaces prove if Jesus would dwell with me there. That's from John Newton's hymn, How Tedious and Tasteless the Hours, which I think is one of the finest pieces of music ever written. <laughs> and it, it's, it's so beautiful because can you say that? Can you say that if I had Jesus and you offered me a palace, it would seem like a stupid kid's toy? And that if I had Jesus and you threw me in a prison, it would seem like a palace because the king was there with me. There's no happier place, there's no better place to be than in the center of God's will. Paul, in the middle of a prison, says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. He says, I'm his prisoner, and I'm begging you to do something. Specifically, that therefore refers back to the first three chapters of Ephesians about how God is saving us by faith through grace. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and bringing them together as one body. So I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beg you, beseech you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. He says, God has called you to something high. God has called you to something mighty. God has called you to something important. And he says, I want you to walk worthy of that. What is it that God has called you to be? What is it that he, what's this great calling that you've been called with? Well, God has called you from being an orphan to being his son. God has called you from being his enemy to being his emissary. God has called you to be one of his. Have you ever seen the way that somebody acts? And Well, oh, this has been all over the news recently. You know, there are these people uh, in the media who have these multi-million dollar, multi-year contracts. And they lose them, you know, instantly because of ethics violations, you know. They've got a morality clause in their contract that says, you have to live your life in a way that we're not going to be ashamed of you representing us. You know, we don't want, we, we're not going to be ashamed of the way that you represent PBS or NBC or whatever. Said so if you leave, your contract is valid as long as you walk worthy of the job that you have. Now, your job is not an anchor on the Today Show. You don't have your own midnight TV sh interview show on PBS. You say, well, yeah, my job is I'm a machinist or I'm a florist or I'm a whatever. No, your job is that you are an ambassador of the Most High God. <laughs> if you were an ambassador of the United States and you went to a foreign country and you made a fool of yourself, how long do you think that you would remain an ambassador of the United States? And we're not going to let you embarrass us like that. God says, I've called you to be my representative to a lost and dying world. I've called you to be my prisoner. And now I'm begging you to live in a way where I believe that you believe that. Do you live like you walk in a way that you are worthy of the vocation of the job that you've been called to? You may have been called in a simpler sense to be a teacher, to be a, a prison guard, or to be a, you know, I don't, I don't know what your 
what your secular calling is. I hope that whatever your job is that you go to every day, that you feel like that's where God wants you. But that is not your real, it's not your real job. Uh, you know, you ought to be able to say when somebody says, what do you do? <laughs> you ought to say, well, I get up every morning, you know, and I go to Dow and they give me the money so I can do my job of being an ambassador of Jesus Christ. See, it's they don't know it. Your employer, Walmart or whoever, I don't know, ISD doesn't know it. But they send you a paycheck that you use to represent Jesus everywhere you go every day. That's the calling that you've been called to. And whether you're 100 years old or 9 years old, your calling, the thing God has called you to, is to represent him. Walk worthy of that. How do you do that? How do you walk worthy? You know, you say, well, I've got to dress the right way. I've got to have the right this. I've got to have the right that. <laughs> That's not what he says. Say, well, you know, if I were a network anchor, then I'd have to wear certain clothes. Or if I were an athlete, I'd have to maintain a certain level of performance. Or if I were, you know, I'd have to do this or that or the other. But he says, this is the way that Christians walk worthy of their calling. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how do you live worthy of your calling? I mean, we could really probably read the second verse and then stop and have an invitation, right? <laughs> how do you do on this? How many of your friends would describe you as meek and lowly? There are not very many people that I would describe as meek and lowly. <laughs> Meekness, of course, we know is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. Um, or, uh, there's a, you know... So many preachers have used this that it's hard to uh, credit it to anybody in particular. But a horse is, is wild. You know, I mean, they, they start out with a wild horse. If you, some people think that uh, a horse would be meek if, you know, you broke its knees. You know, that's not meek, that's weak. But when you break a horse and train a horse and all the power of that horse is under your control, that's a meek horse. Right? They, call it, they call it meeking a horse. Uh, if you, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever spent too much time around horses, but you know, you're walking around, you ride a horse. If you're brushing the horse, you know, you pat its back so you don't surprise it, so it knows you're there when you're walking around it. Now, I, so I stick my hand out and pat the back of the horse when I'm walking around the back of the horse. If that horse wanted to kick me and break all my ribs, do you think that my hand is going to slow that down? Not for a second. <laughs> the horse is not weak, but if you ever want to ride a horse, then you're grateful that all of its power is under your control. You don't, God doesn't want you to be weak, you know. God wants all of your power to be under his control. Lowliness means I don't have to direct everything that happens in my life. I put myself under the hand of God and I meekly let everything that I have work in his way. The next thing, with long-suffering. You know, a lot of uh, modern translations will translate that, the word patience, which is literally accurate. But I really like long-suffering because that's what patience feels like, you know? <laughs> Suffers long. How long will you suffer with somebody? Maybe about five minutes, and then I'm going to call the manager, or I'm going to throw a fit, you know? Are you long-suffering? 
when something doesn't go your way or somebody doesn't act the way that you want them to act or this or that or the other, are you patient with them? Or do you say, no, I'm going to have things my way. I'm going to put my foot down. I'm going to go tell them what's on my mind. When you live like that, you are not living worthy of the calling that God's called you to. You're not living worthy of the job that God's given you. God says, I need you to be meek. I need you to be long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. How do you treat other people? Do you carry other people's burdens in love or not? You say, well, you know, I've got enough problems of my own. I'm not going to worry about anybody else. Let them worry about them. That's not worthy of the calling that God's called you to. Bearing. You know what bearing means. Bear one another's burdens. Carrying. Do you carry each other's pains in love? If you don't, I mean this with all sincerity, you're not a very good Christian. You're a very bad Christian. Because <laughs> you're not walking worthy of the thing that God has called you to. Forbearing one another's burdens in love. Look what he says. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring. Working hard to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Working hard to bring everybody together. Keep unity in the bond of peace. Our church is called unity. But do you know... Uh, may not be hot, it may just be me, but I told you that you're going to uh, humor me today. Um, you can turn it back down next week or back up or whatever. <laughs> um, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Our church is called unity, but putting unity on the sign does not automatically make it happen. You've got to be united. You've got to be one. You've got to be brought together. You've got to be on one team. You know, I've known too many churches where, uh, not personally, but I've known of too many churches where the church would come together and make a decision and then would splinter into four or five different groups about how people felt about that decision, you know. Start bickering with one another, start holding, you know, meetings in their houses to complain about this or that or the other. I've known too many people like that. That's not the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace means that we're bound together by our peace with God. And if I am tied to God, then I'm not going to be able to get that far away from you. See, the, the unity of the Spirit is if we're all together, you may be crazy. You know, you may, you, I may think that some of your ideas are just off the wall. But do you know um, that... <laughs> If you're, you may be nuts, but if you're attached to a good bolt, then I'm, I better be attached to that same bolt, right? You may be absolutely nuts, but if you're attached to Jesus, and I'm attached to Jesus, then we're going to be brought closer together. This is the argument that, we, that I do in marriage counseling. You know, if you've got a braid, the, you know, and here's the husband, and here's the wife, and here's Jesus, you know, and you're braiding them together, you can't get two of them to closer together without getting all three of them closer together. <laughs> the closer you strive for Christ, the more you're brought closer to one another. It, it, you know, when a church starts to bicker among themselves, it is always 100% of the time because they've forgotten their mission. 
because they've forgotten about the calling that they've been called to, because they've forgotten about the importance of reaching people for Jesus. They've forgotten the importance of living in a way worthy of their calling. Galatians, in Galatians, Paul says, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. If you're fighting, if a church, if the people in a church are fighting against each other, it's because they have too much time on their hands. (laughs) You know that uh, if you've ever even watched kids, whether you have kids or not, you know that if they, the border they get, the more they bicker. Have you ever had a couple kids in your house on a rainy day where there was nothing for them to do? Suddenly they're at each other's throats. You know, they don't have anything else to do. If you've got a church and all they do is sit and look out the window like kids on a rainy day, then surprise, surprise, suddenly they're bickering. If you bite and devour one another, you know. And that starts to get really literal with kids. But it's not, in a church, I don't mean that you're biting each other. I mean that you're taking pieces away from each other. You're ripping each other apart. And he says, there's no stopping that. If you're going to walk worthy of the calling that you've been called to, you've got to fight hard to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This first thought, then, is that the church has to be together. Just in the interest of time, I'm going to skip down. I'm going to read them, but we're really going to look again in verse 7. There's one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Again, I, it's 1143, or I would spend a little bit of time talking about that, but... Uh, Got to make the most of the time I have. Uh, the, here, just the whole thought is, of course, that we're all one, that we all come together, lowly and meek, suffering with one another, united together around this one common declaration of our faith in the one God through the one Spirit. But, verse 7 shakes it up a little bit. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Everybody... Grace, the word grace and the word gift are the same word in the Greek. It's charis. Everyone is given a gift by God according to what Jesus chose to give you. So if you say, well, you know, I don't really have anything that I can do, then I say that you're a liar. Okay, God says every Christian is given a gift. Now, whether or not you're willing to use your gift or not depends on how lowly you are and how meek you are and how much your power is under God's control. But every Christian is given a gift. But every Christian is not given the same gift. So we're unified on one hand, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and we're diversified on the other hand. See, on one hand, we're all brought together in the same place, in the same way. On the other hand, we're all deeply divided and deeply differentiated because God gave you this gift, and God gave you this gift, and God gave you this gift. Everybody's got different gifts. Um, I can pick... On a couple people, you know, if uh, Sister Carrie and I traded places and I tried to lead you in singing, you would not be very happy. It would be bad. You know, if Sister Lisa and I traded places and I went to her work and suddenly I was in charge of organizing the HR stuff for the prison system, nobody's getting paid because I lost it all. I don't know where any of the paperwork is. <laughs> it's a nightmare. <laughs> Administrative stuff is not my gift. Okay. <laughs> would not work for me. Um, you know, if I, if I hit any, any one of you, you know, oh, goodness gracious, can you imagine if I switched places with Sister Sandra and somebody gave me a handful of flowers and said, here, make these pretty. Okay, it'd be bad. 
be really bad for everybody. Now, if I took, if Sister Margaret came up here and was talking to you while I was trying to do the books, I don't know, you know, <laughs> the power goes out suddenly. Did you pay the light bill this month, Justin? That's not my gifting. God's given everybody a different gifting. And if I try to get in your lane, or you try to get in my lane, if I try to do what God has built you to do, or if you try to do what God has built me to do, when you get out of your lane in a car, what happens? Heading for a crash. God has given us all one job. This one job is to represent him to the world. We're unified. We've got one job. We're rallied around one master. But we do this in lots of different ways. Every part in the engine of your car is designed to accomplish the same goal, to move you down the road. But if your brake pads decide they're going to start pumping up and down, and your pistons decide they're going to slam down shut when it's time to stop, your car's not going to go anywhere. Every part of your body is designed to do one thing, to keep you alive. But if your lungs decide they're going to fill up with blood and your heart decides it's going to fill up with air, you're going to have a very short day. Every part of you is unified but diverse. Every part of you has one central purpose, and if they get divided, then you've got a problem. But if they all try to be the same, then you've got a problem. That's exactly what it's like in a church. Not everybody has to be the same, but everybody has to do their part. You know, can you imagine um, your, your body, you know, you get up one morning and you get out of bed and you make it into the kitchen. You go get ready to get your cup of coffee and you, you look and your hand's not there. Say, oh, no, my hand just, you know, my hand wasn't feeling good today or wanted to watch the game on TV. So my hand didn't get up to go to work. I guess the rest of my body will have to lump along. But if we're all different parts of the body of Christ, then you say, well, I don't have that important of a part. But when you're not here, the rest of the church gets here. We go to get our coffee and the hand's missing. You know, your part matters. What part of your body is not important? You know, I mean, you, you've all seen this stuff. Parts of the body that seem to be so small and seem to be so unimportant can really ruin your day. How, you know, if you think about somebody that gets a knee replacement, the little piece of your body where the kneecap, you know, and everything, where that all comes together, if I just had that laying on a table, it doesn't look very important. It's small and thin. And, uh, but if that part of your body's messed up, then you've got a lot of pain for your whole body. Or if you've got a toothache, you've got, you know, a cavity, you cannot go around and say, well, it's just my tooth, so I'm going to go ahead and handle everything else the rest of the way, you know, normally. I've just got strep throat, so it's just this one tiny part of me that hurts, so the rest of me is going to pull together. It doesn't work like that. So since you're all different parts of one body, when one part hurts, the whole body hurts. <laughs> when one part's not working, the whole body is hamstrung. So each one of us is given grace, given giftings, according to the measure of the grace of Christ. Look what he says. Wherefore he saith, because of this, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all things, that he might fill all things. Okay? He says, Jesus ascended up on high. 
and he took captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. But he says, for that to make any sense, Jesus had to descend first. So let me tell you the story. Maybe you know the story. Jesus is eternally God. He was in heaven from eternity past. But he chose to come down and become a man. He descended down into the earth. He descended and he emptied himself of all of his glory and all of his power, and he lived a perfect life. And not only did he descend down to being a man and living a perfect life, he was descended to death, even death on a cross, and he was buried. Right? That's called the descent of Jesus. He went from the glory of heaven to humanity to death on a cross. He was buried. But after that, the Bible says that on the third day, after Jesus died for our sins in our place, he rose again. And when he rose again, he rose and was given a, a new glorified body and ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is enthroned in heaven. So you've got the descent of Jesus and the ascent of Jesus. Now this passage teaches us something. Uh, can we go back to verse 8, please, Devin? I'm sorry. Yes, verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, when he ascended up, when Jesus went up into heaven, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. He did two things. One thing he did was he took all the things that enslave you and he enslaved them. You say, well, you know, I just can't help myself. I've had this temper my whole life, whatever you say. Whatever your excuse is. It's just the way my mama raised me. Or whatever your excuse is about why you're sinning. You know what God has to say about that? Jesus died on the cross for that sin. And he took that sin captive. And so when I continue to sin as a Christian, it's not because of the way that I was made. Because the Bible says if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's not because it's the way I was made. It's because I don't believe in God enough to believe that he took captivity captive. Say, well, I know I've got a bad attitude. I know that I gossip too much. I know that I, whatever it is, he says, I've just always been that way. Jesus says, do you believe me or not? When I said that I came to take away the sins of the world. You believe me or not when I say I took captivity captive. All the things that enslave you, you know, lust and temper and laziness and all the things that enslave you, Jesus took as his prisoners. All the things that would make you captive are Jesus' captives and he carried them up with him. He took all of your sins away. But he didn't leave you empty-handed. He says, let me take those sins out of your hands so that I can give you gifts. Let me take those things away from you so that I can give you gifts. Now, we normally think of this as, okay, God takes captivity captive. He takes away my sins. He gives me gifts, and now I've got gifts. You know, now I can do this or I can do that. What's really interesting in this passage is that the gifts are not things like the ability to speak or the ability to sing or the ability to these different things. The gifts are other people. Let me show you. Look here in verse 10. I'm, so, I'm sorry, verse 11. And he gave some, what are the gifts that Jesus gave? He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. He gives some of the examples. He sent the apostles. He sent the prophets that wrote the, the New Testament. He sent the evangelists that are like missionaries that take the word out. He sent some to be pastors, pastor teachers. You notice how there's just one, one thing there, to be the pastors who teach the people. God says, 
I want to take your sin away so that I can give you to each other. See, if you're a part of this church, you're not a part of this church by accident. You're a part of this church because God has given you to this church, and God has given everybody in this church to you. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to each other. And so when people refuse to join a church, people refuse to have a part of the church or whatever, what they're doing is denying other people the gift that God has given them. You're denying yourself. Now, if somebody's not a Christian, then, of course, they don't want to acknowledge that they don't belong to themselves. But if you are a Christian and you realize that you're the prisoner of the Lord, God says, I'm giving you to this group of people, and that's where you're going to be. So what does this tell me? This tells me that when the church comes uh, to the point of voting on a new pastor, your job in voting is not to say, yes, this is the pastor I want, or no, this is not the pastor I want. This is important. Your job is to say that after prayer, after consideration, I believe this is the pastor that God is giving us or not. There's a big difference there. Because the person that God is giving you may not be your favorite. You know, your favorite may not be the one that God is sending here. This is the reason, and I'll mention this tonight, but I'll mention it now. Um, A lot of churches will hear three, four, or five people and have them all preach, and then vote on them all at once, you know, and say who gets the highest, and things like that. I, you know, the original Greek term for that is stupid. Um, and that's <laughs> because there's a couple reasons. One, you don't remember what I preached on a month ago. How are you supposed to remember what you thought about the guy a month ago? You know, you should, that's, not, that's not practical. And two, it's not a race. It's not a contest. It's not about picking the person who's the best. The proper way to do it, and in fact, uh, this is the only way that I would ever go to any church, and Brother Paul, too, he told me this, and that's how I got it stuck in my head. The only way that I would ever consider going to any church is if the they were going to hear me and then vote on me. And if they voted no, hear somebody else and then vote on them. You say, well, we have to be able to compare our options. It's not about your options. It's about God gave gifts, right? It's dumb to do it the other way. One, because I didn't, uh, when they asked me about that, at Alvin, and I said, no. I said, if you're going to hear two or three people, then I'm not going to come because it's not fair to the people in Richwood for them to wonder for a month and a half what I'm going to do. That's not fair to anybody. Uh, I'm, I'm happy there. You know, I'm not desperate to leave. When you hear three, four, or five people and kind of vote between them, the only people you'll get to come are people that are desperate to leave where they are. And you don't want somebody who's desperate to leave where they are. You know, I promise you that uh, if somebody's desperate to leave where they are, the problem is not where they are 99% of the time. The problem is them. You guys know anybody who can't hold down a job for more than a year, and it's always wherever they're working that's the problem? You know, they get a bad boss, and then they move somewhere else, and they get another bad boss, and they get another bad, you know, just very unlucky, you know? <laughs> the, problem, the problem is you when you have problems with other people, you know? The only consistent factor in all of your failures is you. you know, think about that. But the, the, theo- the theological point here is that God, this is so important, that God has not called us to interview you know, and compare resumes and pick the best person. God has called us to prayerfully say yes or no. Is this the person God's sending us or not? The, uh, the pulpit committee, of course, compares resumes and stuff, and they make a recommendation about who to invite. That's the reason that you ought to be so prayerful about who you want on your pulpit committee, because they're the people that you're trusting to represent you.
But once it gets to the point of somebody coming and preaching, they need to preach Sunday. You need to interview them Sunday afternoon, have them preach Sunday night, and vote Wednesday. That's just the, that's just, that's the only way that's fair to you. That's the only way that's fair to them. That's the only way that's fair to the church that they're currently pastoring. And theologically, if you understand this point, that it's about the person that God sends, then you won't have a problem with it. If you think about it as a job interview where you're comparing five candidates and figuring out who's the best preacher you can get for the least money, well, then, yeah, you're going to want to hear a bunch. But from a theological standpoint, I want you to understand that God is sending somebody. God is already preparing somebody to send. And what is the job of that pastor? You know this. You've heard me. If you've heard me at all, you've heard me quote Ephesians 4.12. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God sends the pastor teachers and gives them a job, and that is to perfect the saints, to equip the saints. The job of the saints is to do the work of the ministry. The work of the ministry is to build up the body. So I want you to see this process. God sends a pastor to preach and teach and encourage and challenge and equip you to do the work. You do the work to each other because you've been given to each other. And that builds up everybody in the body, including the pastor, who's then better able to equip and better able to build and grow and grow and grow. This is how a church works when it works well. So look here in verse 13. He says, till we all come in the unity of the faith. Well, wait a minute, we've we've circled back around, haven't we? We were united, and then we're diverse. We've all got different jobs, different parts of the work of the ministry that we do. But the purpose of all those different things is to bring us all to unity again. Unity in diversity. The only way that we can love each other and work together in all of our different parts is if we're united on one common purpose. And if the greatest purpose in your life is not to see souls saved and lives changed, then you're not going to be able to get along with anybody. And if you can't get along with anybody, I wonder, you know, again, I wonder whose fault that is. I wonder where the problem is, you know. If you, uh, sometimes we get so irritable. This happens to me, you know. I just, some days I'll just be upset with everybody. And then i got to stop, step back and say, okay, If I'm upset with everybody, if I can't get along with everybody, the problem is probably not everybody. The problem is that I started out with a bad attitude today, and I've got to check myself. We have to be united so that we can be diverse, and then we've got to be diverse so that we can be united. You cannot have one without the other. So the purpose is that we all come in the unity of the faith to the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ. The goal that requires everybody to do their part, that requires everybody to be united and yet diverse, is that this church would be a body of Christ that is a full representation of Christ. That when people come here, they could say, we've seen Jesus. There's no one person here who can perfectly represent Jesus. You've all got problems. I didn't want to be the one to break that to you, but I'm leaving. So you've all got problems. You've all got different problems. None of you is a perfect picture of Jesus, but all of you can be. 
somebody can come into the presence of God when everyone in their diversity works together for that unity. As a church grows, the primary way that a church needs to grow is not numerically to have more people, but growing up into the full height of Jesus, the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, there's a danger until we do that, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. It says we have to grow up so that we won't be fooled by false teachers tossed back and forth in this way and that way. But instead, speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. This is the secret. Speaking the truth in love. If you're going to be in the ministry, and I hope that all of you are, I hope that all of you say, you know what? I'm not going to hire somebody else to be in the ministry. I'm not going to, <laughs> I'm going to be doing the work of the ministry. You're going to have to speak the truth in love. If you've got all truth and no love, if you've been around anybody like that, that everything they say is technically correct, but they're mad at everybody all the time. You know, they just, uh, I've, I've heard some pastors <laughs> like that where I was frightened at the end. I was like, you know, I don't know that you said anything that was wrong, but I wouldn't want to listen to you every week. <laughs> Speaking the truth in love. But if you've got somebody who's all love and no truth, if they, you know, oh, you know, it's going to be okay. You don't worry about that. Well, that's a lousy one, too. If you had a doctor that was all truth and no love, the doctor walked into you and said, hey, um, you've got this terrible disease and you're going to die. You can pay at the nurse's station. They walked out. That would be a bad doctor. If you had another doctor who said, you know, we ran your tests and boy, you know, I've never seen somebody's heart just filled with sunshine and rainbows. You go on, you have a wonderful day. If you're sick, that's a lousy doctor too. <laughs> if somebody is a soul doctor, you know, somebody's coming and working on your, your heart, and they say, oh, you know, you're just the worst person that I've ever met. You're just awful. That's lousy. That's all truth and no love. If somebody comes in and they ignore your faults and they just tell you what you want to hear, that's all love and no truth and you're eating up with the disease. But speaking the truth in love is, I have a relationship with you. I love you. I worry about you. Here's this problem in your life. Here's how it's going to hurt you. And here how, here's how I'm going to help you through it. Speaking the truth in love. That's what every church needs. That's what every person needs to do. So, speaking the truth in love, that we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Speaking the truth in love is what's going to make us more like Jesus, who was 100% grace and 100% truth. Jesus was loving in every encounter that he had with anybody. But he didn't compromise truth either. Do you remember the woman who was caught in adultery and they brought her to Jesus and said, we need to stone her? And Jesus said to her, uh, he, you know, he writes in the sand and all the people leave. And she says, uh, he said, where, where are your accusers? So they're all gone, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you either. He says, okay, I don't condemn you either. But then what's the next thing that Jesus says? Go and sin no more. (laughs) 
So she was caught in adultery. She was caught in the act of adultery. They're all ready to stone her. Jesus says, I'm not going to stone you. I'm not going to crush you, but I am going to tell you, go and sin no more. Full of grace and truth. Jesus didn't pick up rocks and start throwing the matter. But Jesus also didn't say, you know, if adultery makes you happy, you go on. You know, don't worry about your husband. He's just old-fashioned and uptight. <laughs> he says, go and sin no more. Full of grace and truth. And so if we are going to be like Jesus, if this church is going to be like Jesus, it is going to be by speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, our last verse. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Well, when I told you it was the last verse, I bet you didn't guess it was going to be a sentence like that. But look at each part of it. He said, Jesus is the one who's joined the body together. I already told you that. I already told you that you're not, you don't join a church by accident. You don't join a church just because. You join a church because God has crafted the different parts of this body together. And those different parts bring it together by what every joint supplies. You say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm not that important. If I'm here about once a month, that'll be good enough for everybody. No. He says, every joint supplies the part that it needs. Every, every, the whole body needs every joint according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Each part of the one body works in its own way to build up the one body unto the edifying of itself in love. The body builds itself up. The pastor-teacher is given to the church to equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of the ministry to build the body up. The saints build themselves up. The body builds itself in love. So this morning... My challenge to you is more or less the same thing that um, I've been trying to challenge you to since the day we met. <laughs> that you would give your heart to Jesus. <laughs> You'd give your life to Jesus. See, if you are not a Christian this morning, if you have never come to the place, you know, maybe your, your idea of church is, you know, being scared off or, you know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe your idea of church is all truth and no grace, or maybe you think you want a church that's all grace and no truth, or maybe you think, you know, maybe you think you want these different things. But what I want you to understand is that Jesus comes to you today speaking the truth in love. Jesus comes to you today saying, you are a sinner. Done things you shouldn't do, you knew you shouldn't have done. And Jesus is not going to excuse your sin. He's not going to say, oh, don't worry about it. Because he's a holy God. You know, God is not tolerant of sin. He's going to say, the things that you've done that are wrong, you know were wrong. But yeah, I'll, I'll do it one more time because I, I think it's so important for you to learn how to do it. If you're talking to somebody about Jesus, you know, how do I tell them how to do it? It's very simple. Well, the first commandment, God says, don't have any other gods before me. Have you ever, in your life, put anything before God? Well, I, uh, <laughs> what do we call that? 